right, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Lord, I thank you so much that we can sing, You Are Our Living Hope. That we can sing, Hallelujah, which just means praise Yahweh. Death has lost its grip on me. We know that every human who has ever lived or will live will die. But in Christ, you have broken that chain. And death, as we will read this morning, death belongs to the people of God. We own it. We have conquered it. It only serves us now to usher us into the presence of our King. So I pray that your Holy Spirit, Lord, would be working in our midst as we turn our eyes and our ears to your word. Please stir our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, if you have a Bible, or um, if there's a Bible next to you in the pew, uh, not to be confused with the hymn book, uh, there are both, and both are black. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The letter of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to be wrapping up the chapter in verses 16 to 23 this morning. Here in this chapter, Paul is continuing to give reasons for why the Corinthian church really needs to change how they are thinking about church leaders. Last week, we saw one key reason that Christians ought not to make a big deal about or fight over church leaders is because church leaders are just God's farmhands working on God's field, the church being God's field. And they're not making anything grow. God's doing that. They're just serving in the field. Or Paul uses the illustration of construction workers. They're like construction workers building on God's temple. And they will be given a call to account before the Lord based on how they are building. But don't boast about them. They're just construction workers, farmhands. And then Paul, so Paul says, verse 9 of chapter 3, Paul says, we're just co-workers. We're all teammates in this. All church leaders, in any capacity, they're just co-workers working on the same farm. They're just fellow construction workers working on the same construction project that spans the lifetime of thousands of us, that spans eternity, the people of God, are that construction project, the temple of the living God. And that's what we're going to zero in on this morning. It's where Paul, he's already said, you are God's building, and now in verses 16 and 17, in a minute, we're going to see he unpacks this. What does that mean? Christians are the temple of the Lord. Pastors and teachers ought to see themselves as building on the temple of God with the spirit-given wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world when they minister and serve in their roles. 
Temple builders build by the wisdom of God's Spirit. Do you know where that shows up first in the Bible? Bezalel and Aholiab filled with the Holy Spirit, build the tabernacle of God in the wilderness. The Spirit of wisdom gives them wisdom to build the temple. And Paul's drawing from that theme. He says, God's temple builders, his apostles, his prophets, they're to build the same way. Not with worldly wisdom. If you want to draw a crowd in Granville, what would the worldly wisdom say? How could we build a big crowd here? Richard, what if we gave away a free heart? Door tickets. Yeah, yeah. Like the best. I don't know what the best is, but but free. You just got to show up and get a ticket, right? And we'll call your number at the end. We just do that each week. Right? Well, that'll draw a crowd, right? Well, that, no, that's worldly wisdom. What you win them with is what you keep them with. So you're just going to have to be constantly reinventing the wheel. Bigger prizes. Now we're giving away, you know, the, the 2022, you know, F-150, whatever it is. Okay, so, but Jesus is the foundation of the church. We want Jesus to be the one we are building upon. We want people to be drawn to Jesus. How we build the church matters. And so, 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's going to start talking about who the church is. Verse 16. Let's start reading this together. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Wise with the wisdom of God, right? Verse 19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's another name for the Apostle Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. There's three things that I want to key in on in these verses. They're all, they all have to do, if you're sitting here and you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, then these three statements are true of you. You are God's temple. You're a part of God's temple. Second, all things belong to you. Third, you belong to Christ and to God. Now there's a few other things in these verses that I'm not going to delve into. Uh, we've kind of seen some of them before. The, the wisdom and foolishness ideas in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The difference between God's wisdom and human wisdom. Paul gets into it here. We're, we're going to kind of skim over that and just hone in on three identity statements. 
So, first, you are God's temple. Listen again to verses 16 and 17. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So to start off here, we got to know what, what is a temple? What is a temple? In any religion, okay, any religion, you pick one, Buddhism, Hinduism, a temple is an earthly house for a god. The realm of the gods is the invisible dimension of heaven. Okay? A non-earthly, invisible, spiritual dimension of reality. The place the gods live, or God lives. And the realm of humans is below. The physical dimension of reality. And a temple was viewed in the ancient world and even in many places today, okay? You go to India, you'll find temples, right? These temples are earthly places of overlap where heaven meets earth, like a hotspot where you can go and connect with the other realm. Doesn't just happen anywhere. You gotta go to the temple and you can connect. That's why usually temples are built on high places. Because you, you want to be close to the heavens, right? So you build a temple on a hill. All over this globe, even in places where religions have kind of faded out, you'll still see altars on high places. In the middle of the, the, the Mongolian steppes, every little high place has a little go high to meet with God. That's kind of the idea. Biblical authors were no different in their way they imagined it. That's why the temple of Israel is built on a hill. And it all goes back to the Garden of Eden. Eden, in Ezekiel chapter 28, we find was on a mountain. The mountain of the Lord. The holy mountain. Which, and the rivers would flow out of Eden and give life. To all creation. So King Solomon built a temple for Israel on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation of Israel. Now, when Solomon built this beautiful temple for Israel to go and meet with God once more, he says this in his prayer of dedication. First Chronicles 6, verse 18. He says, looking at this beautiful temple, which was an incredible work of architecture. He says this, will God really dwell on earth with humans? And he prays to the Lord and he says this, O Lord, the heavens, the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So here's what's happening. Solomon builds a temple on earth for the one true God. The one living God. The God alone who deserves worship. Who deserves the temple. And Solomon builds this beautiful temple. The best that he can build. And he looks at this shiny little box. That he made. Huge. By our standard. But he, look, he looks at it. And then he looks at the heavens. 
the realm of God that God created. The, the moon and the stars which he has set in place. And he looks at the skies and he says, you are bigger than that. How, you, you're not going to fit in this little box. <laughs> the heavens of heavens can't contain you. How much less this little golden shiny box that I built for you. Will God really dwell with men? And then he goes on to play and pray. And yet, Lord, you've said you're going to put your name here. And when I pray towards this place, you are here. We will meet with you here at this temple. The temple in the ancient world was a place where God allowed the presence of his spirit to overshadow in a special way so that his people, humans, who have rebelled against him, if they would repent of their sins, they could have their sins dealt with and be forgiven there and have a relationship with God through the priests that served there in the temple. But that temple, the temple that Solomon built, that was destroyed many years later because of the sins of God's people. They were worshiping idols, even in the temple itself. We read that in Ezekiel. And so God sent Babylon to destroy the temple, the destroyer of the temple. And just like Paul says in verse 17 of our passage today, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. How does Paul know that? He's reading his Bible. Babylon was destroyed. And any future Babylon-like entities who rage against the temple of God, wherever that temple is found, will be destroyed. What is God's temple now then? Verse 16. You are God's temple. Not a shiny box of gold. God's spirit dwells in your midst, O church. God's church is like a house that belongs to God. Just like you live in your house, so the Spirit of Jesus lives in the midst amongst God's people. His presence is here with his gathered church. He is real. He is with us. We together are his house, his temple. There are many practical implications of this truth. Paul actually brings it up again in 1 Corinthians 6 to talk about it, and we'll get there in days to come. But the first implication that I just want to mention here is that God wants to be with you and with me. He wants to dwell with us. Not just when we gather as his temple on the Lord's day, but wherever we are, God loves to be with his people. God is with you. He's in you. Wherever you are, wherever you go, the spirit of Jesus hovers over you like the presence of the cloud over the temple of Israel. The presence of God would show up over the temple in a cloud. The spirit is like that. The spirit of Jesus fills you. Just like God's spirit filled the prophets of old, you and I, we are the temple of the living God. If you trust in Jesus. Together, we're the temple. That's who you are. That's the first identity statement that we're looking at. You are a temple together of the living God. We are the temple of God. The Apostle John uses this language in the book of Revelation. Revelation 3, verse 12. He says that you're a pillar. You're like a pillar in the temple of God. Whoever 
overcomes the devil, whoever stands true to God's name, I'll, he'll be like a pillar in the temple of my God. That's what John says. So, so picture, you know what a pillar is? Like a supporting column? He's like, God's temple has lots of pillars supporting it. They're Christians. Individual Christians. They're like pillars in the temple of God. Part of the temple. The Apostle Peter uses a little different illustration. Carl loves this one. You're like living stones being built together into a house for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. So picture the temple, the people of God, like, a, like the bricks of our building. Right? And each Christian is like a brick in that temple. The second implication of this, God cares what we do with and to his temple. Imagine your house. Okay? Hopefully it's a, a, a special place for you. Right? Your home, your little sanctuary where you go to get refuge, to put your feet up. How would you feel if someone came into your house and dumped a huge bucket of mud right on your kitchen table? Boom. What'd you do that for? That's not cool. Yet that's nowhere near as serious as it is for us to bring sin that's not dealt with into our lives and into the church, the living God, and act like it's okay. It's not okay. We must deal with sin in the midst of the church and in our own lives as well. It must be confessed. Confess your sin to the Lord. It must be cleansed. 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to really look at this. Paul makes, Paul is building towards something with his language here about sin in the temple. When there's, when there's dirt in the temple, God wants it out. When there's uncleanness in our lives, God wants us to deal with it through the blood of his son and the forgiveness we find through Christ. In verse 17 of this chapter, though, Paul says if someone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. This is a huge warning to the Corinthian church. Their, their squabbles and fights over different church leaders, I follow this guy, I follow that guy, was ripping bricks of the temple apart. It was like their, their fights were like taking sledgehammers to the temple walls. They were acting like Babylon of old, the temple destroyers. If you read the Bible, you know what happens to Babylon. They, too, are destroyed for their sins. And so Paul is warning the church here. He's saying, don't, you don't want to be a temple destroyer. Trust me. When your wisdom of the world, your allegiance to Anything other than Jesus causes fights in the church, causes bricks to come apart. You are Babylon in that moment. You're, you're teaming up with the temple killer. Don't do it. Repent. This is I mean, serious stuff. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you are acting like Babylon of old. Babylon wrecks temples and their actions their quarrels, 
There's squabbles over worldly wisdom. I follow this guy. I follow that guy. I voted for him. They're, they're, it's ruining the church. And it's deadly. I laid one foundation for this temple, says Paul, and it's Jesus, the King. Build on him. Build straight. World leaders, church leaders, they come and they go, they rise and they fall and they will to the tent till the king comes. We pledge allegiance to the throne of the risen Son of God and to the kingdom over which he reigns. One king, Christ. And only Christ can bring peace to this broken world. World leaders can do great good. Church leaders can do great good. But only Jesus is king. So we want to be a Jesus people. No more boasting about church leaders, says Paul. Verses 18 to 22. No more boasting about church leaders. That's worldly wisdom, not God's wisdom. And now Paul restates what he said earlier. Church leaders belong to the church, not vice versa. Church leaders are servants. That's why they call them ministers, right? They're ministers of the church. Verses 21 to 22. All things are yours. Either Paul or Paulus or Cephas, Peter. And then he adds something really wild. I want you to see this. Look at verse 22. Or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. What does that mean? I'll read verses 18 to 22 for you again, and then we'll look at that. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the wisdom of this age, by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. So this is the second identity statement. First, you're at God's temple. Second, everything belongs to you. Church leaders belong to the church. <clears throat> the smartest Christian you know belongs to the temple. And to you, he's a gift to the church. His preaching belongs to you. All things are yours. All the things that God has given the church belong to all Christians. That's a wonderful thing. Somebody writes a great song in the desert of Africa. It belongs to the church. And we might sing it here in a hundred years. It might take a little while to get to us. Be new to us. They'd be like, oh, we've been singing that in the Saharas for centuries, right? All things are yours. That's one of the fun things about singing Christian songs that are 500 years old, 800 years old. Almighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Martin Luther has been with Jesus for over 500 years now. 500 years? He wrote that. It's a gift to the church. But Paul says more than that. 
There's five things Paul lists here that are ours. The world, life, death, present, and the future. What does that mean? First, the world belongs to Christians. This present world, how does it belong to us? You can almost feel the opposite sometimes. The world is constantly pressing us to conform to its mold, to live life the way it requires if you want to succeed, you need this, money. You need popularity. You need comfort. The world demands so much of our thoughts and our time. It ties us down. It presses us to live as if this life was all there is. That's why Paul writes, Romans 12, verse 2, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. So there is a pattern of living for Christians that they could potentially conform to that is a pattern that lives according to this present world. But, Paul says here, this world, this present world, belongs to Christians. So instead of letting the world control us and direct how we live, we are to rule over the world. How? Because in Jesus, we have become part of the new humanity, the new Adam, that Jesus has risen from the grave to become. And as our connection, because we're connected to Jesus, the king, the new Adam, Adam 2.0, who Adam was created to take care of God's world, right? In the Garden of Eden. And how did he do? God gave him the keys to creation said here, drive this world. Do it the way I say. And Adam climbs into the car. Whoa, nice world. I'm going to take care of it. Promise. He starts it, and all of a sudden, somebody's in the passenger seat with him. Who is it? Satan. Satan says, here, I'll drive. Do it my way. Not God's way. I don't listen to God's will. And drives creation into Right? Death comes. And now Satan is the god of this age. The ruler. Satan, Adam, the ruler of creation, the earthly ruler, passed the baton to the devil. We could dwell here for a while, talk about that. But the point being, Jesus has come, defeated the ruler of this age. Jesus is the ruler of this world now. Satan's time is brief. And if you're connected to Jesus, you even now are re and your rule over creation is reestablished. The world belongs to you. Through Jesus, we can be set free of being controlled by and consumed by this world, and we can live in this world in a way that shows Jesus is king. Take care of everything that's connected to us in this world. Take care of our home. Take care of our belongings, our family, in a way that honors King Jesus. It belongs to us. We are stewards of this earth. And one day, when Jesus reappears, we will inherit creation 
a new creation. So right now, life is practice for eternity. The way you take care of this world, this broken world now, is a reflection on how you will live then in the new creation when Jesus appears. The world is yours. Second, life is ours. Life can sometimes feel just like a grind, right? To stay alive, to just keep going. And yet nobody, no matter how hard you try to stay alive, you can't keep your life forever. Something will always take your life at the end of the day. Right now, every one of us sitting here today, we don't know what's going to take our life. We don't know when it's going to happen. But something or someone will take your life from you. And there is nothing that you can do to keep your life. So how can, the, how can life really belong to you? Well, if you're a Christian, there's something that's profoundly true about you. You, you, you are someone, a Christian, is someone who gave their life to Jesus. So how can life belong to you? You place life in his hands. You can live for him. You can lay your life down in his service, and then your life will always belong to you because he will give it back at resurrection. Eternal life is yours. No one can take it away because Jesus keeps it safe. So how can life belong to you? The life that you can't keep, you say, Jesus, it's yours. I'm going to live for you. Jesus talks about that as laying your life down, taking up your cross, and following me. Give your life to Jesus. Give him the driver's keys for your life, and you can't keep it anyway. But if you give your life to him, then it belongs to you. He'll give it back in resurrection. For eternity, which leads right into the second, third thing. Death belongs to the Christian. Death is yours. That's really amazing to think about. Death belongs to you. Death is a terrible tyranny. No one escapes. Every one of us is dying, even now. Our life is slipping away. The power of death extends past just the moment when everyone experiences physical death. The reality of death casts a shadow backwards over all of our life. Everyone lives in light of, I'm going to die someday. And yet, as Christians, we can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Death actually serves us. Even though Paul can call death at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he calls death the great enemy, the last enemy, Death is our enemy, and yet, our, even our enemy, death, serves us. Bows at our feet. How? Because we serve a resurrected king. We are a part of King Jesus. Death is not the end for the believer. We own it. We win. We can say to death, death, you, not, you can't take my life from me because I'm a Christian and I gave my life Jesus. He owns it and he will raise it on the last day. So Paul can say here, death is yours, O Christian. Your death will only serve to usher you into resurrection one day. The present is yours, says Paul. How many of you have felt 
like a slave to the urgency of what you've got to do in the present. Constantly being controlled and consumed by the demands of work and your home and your family. A slave to the present, controlled by the urgent. And yet Jesus wants us to be set free from feeling like we're slaves to the present. From the tyranny of the urgent. Jesus wants us to be free from the feeling, I've got to respond this way. I've got to react right now. No, the present belongs to us because Jesus is Lord over the present. Every single moment we live in the present, even right now, belongs to him. And everything you do in the present, you can do for him and through him. You serve him in the present. So instead of being controlled by the present, we live for the king who owns the present. And so because we live for the king who owns the present, the present belongs to our kingdom, to us. There may be a thousand obligations that you have to fulfill through the day, and it can feel like you're being pulled. And yet, you know, and you can know as a Christian, that every moment you live, if you are living in a way that honors Jesus, doing your best for Jesus, then the present belongs to you, because you are serving him in the present. Using the present for his glory. Using everything that comes your way, turning it to his honor. Thanking him in everything for the strength that he gives you. Even as you're exhausted at the end of the day. Lord, I am serving you in the present. The present belongs to me. Because as I serve you in the present in a way that honors you, not only do I experience your smile now, but I know that I am storing up for myself a reward in heaven one day and the joy of hearing you're well done thou good and faithful servant the present is yours and the future is yours you can't control the future right but the future belongs to you somehow how is that true it's because you belong to the God who holds the future in his hands he has promised resurrection life forever in the new creation for all who trust in him. And so no longer do you need to be controlled in your life by fears of how will I die? Will it hurt? How long? The future is yours, O Christian. And it is bright. It is bright because our king is there. And he's there for eternity. His throne will never go away. He will not be shaken we cannot control the future, so give your life to Jesus who controls the future, and the future will belong to you. It will serve you. The future will bow at your feet in the new creation. So all things are yours. The world, life, death, the present, the future, all are yours, and this is the final thing and the shortest point today. You are Christ, and Christ See that in verse 30, 23? You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So who are you, Christian? Who are you? You belong to God. You and I belong to God. Our bodies are not our own. God owns us. This is huge for our identity, for your understanding of who you are. You ever wonder who I am I? When you wake up, the answer is, I am God's. 
I belong, body and soul, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. I am important, not because I'm just awesome. I am important because I am God's. I am loved deeply because I am God's. I am known truly and fully and understood deeply because God owns me and knows me. You ever feel like people don't understand you? God understands you. That is who you are. You are God's. And what he thinks matters most and matters eternally. He knows you. And your life is his. And our church, this church here, we are God's. He cares deeply about his temple. Together we are precious to him. He wants to be with us. He loves to be in our midst in a special way when we assemble together as his temple. We belong to him. So I want to close just reminding us again of these three statements. Christian, you are God's temple. Christian, all things belong to you. All things serve you if you belong to Jesus. And finally, you belong to God. If you have ever felt unimportant or insignificant, I want you to know this. You are God's, and God wants a relationship with you. If you have ever felt a deep longing to belong somewhere, just want to feel like I finally found my tribe. Like I, I belong. I want you to know that you belong to Jesus. If you're a Christian. And you belong to his family. Even though you might feel sometimes like you don't quite fit. Because the brick next to you isn't quite like you. And it's got jagged edges. There's nothing the love of Jesus cannot and smooth out and cover over. You belong to the temple of the living God. You are part of something far bigger and more amazing and more beautiful than you will ever see this side of eternity. You are part of a great palace, cathedral, temple, building that God has been building for thousands of years and the Original builders never saw it. Just like in the ancient world, many times, like the cathedrals, were started by somebody and finished by someone else. Because they took many years to build. No, they never saw the final product. We are a part of something like that. We look at these cathedrals of now and say, wow, that's amazing. Humans could build something like that. How much more amazing the people of God that God is building to be a temple for his presence in the new creation. This beautiful world that's coming. We are a part of that. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer in Jesus. You don't, you know about him up here. You intellectually assent to the fact that there is a God and he does have a son, Jesus. And yet, you haven't truly given your life to him. 
You could become a follower of Jesus today. Don't wait. You can't keep your life. You're going to lose it. But Jesus can give it back. If you lay down your life for Jesus now, give your life to him, put him in control, yield to his kingly authority, then you have crossed over from death to life. And both death and life will now serve you through Jesus. You can trust him. He gave his life for you. The promises that he makes is to give you life forever with him. So I'm just going to close with the word of prayer. And then we'll go to our time of communion. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for who he is for us. Thank you that you want a relationship with us through Christ. And I pray that you would just stir our hearts in love for Jesus this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.